Chapter Five, Part Two of Raffles: Further Adventures of the Amateur Cracksman. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Kristen Hughes. Raffles: Further Adventures of the Amateur Cracksman by E. W. Horning. Chapter Five: To Catch a Thief, Part Two. King John's mansions, as everybody knows, are the oldest, the ugliest, and the tallest block of flats in all London, but they are built upon a more generous scale than has since become the rule, and with a less studious regard for the economy of space. We were about to drive into the spacious courtyard when the gatekeeper checked us in order to let another hansom drive out. It contained a middle-aged man of the military type, like ourselves in evening dress. That much I saw as his hansom crossed our bows, because I could not help seeing it. But I should not have given the incident a second thought if it had not been for his extraordinary effect upon Raffles. In an instant he was out upon the curb paying the cabby, and in another was leading me across the street away from the mansions. Where on earth are you going? I naturally exclaimed. Into the park, said he. We are too early. His voice told me more than his words. It was strangely stern. Was that him in the hansom? It was. Well, then, the coast's clear, said I comfortably. I was for turning back then and there, but Raffles forced me on with a hand that hardened on my arm. It was a nearer thing than I care about, said he. This seat will do. No, the next one's further from a lamp post. We will give him a good half hour, and I don't want to talk. We had been seated some minutes when Big Ben sent a languid chime over our heads to the stars. It was half past ten, and a sultry night. Eleven had struck before Raffles awoke from his sullen reverie, and recalled me from mine with a slap on the back. In a couple of minutes we were in the lighted vestibule at the inner end of the courtyard of King John's Mansions. Just left Lord Ernest at Lady Kirkleatham's, said Raffles. Gave me his key and asked us to wait for him in his rooms. Will you send us up in the lift? In a small way, I never knew old Raffles do anything better. There was not an instant's demur. Lord Ernest Belleville's rooms were at the top of the building, but we were in them as quickly as lift could carry and page boy conduct us. And there was no need for the skeleton key after all. The boy opened the outer door with one of his own and switched on the lights before leaving us. Now that's interesting, said Raffles as soon as we were alone. They can come in and clean when he is out. What if he keeps his swag at the bank? By Jove, that's an idea for him. I don't believe he's getting rid of it. It's all lying low somewhere, if I'm not mistaken, and he's not a fool. While he spoke, he was moving about the sitting-room, which was charmingly furnished in the antique style, and making as many remarks as though he were an auctioneer's clerk with an inventory to prepare and a day to do it in instead of a cracksman who might be surprised in his crib at any moment. "'Chippendale of sorts, eh, Bunny? Not genuine, of course, but where can you get genuine Chippendale now? And who knows it when they see it? There's no merit in mere antiquity. Yet the way people pose on the subject, if a thing's handsome and useful and good cabinet-making, it's good enough for me.' "'Hadn't we better explore the whole place?' I suggested nervously. He had not even bolted the outer door, nor would he when I called his attention to the omission. If Lord Ernest finds his rooms locked up, he'll raise Cain, 
said Raffles. We must let him come in and lock up for himself before we corner him. But he won't come yet. If he did, it might be awkward, for they'd tell him down below what I told them. A new staff comes on at midnight. I discovered that the other night. Supposing he does come in before? Well, he can't have us turned out without first seeing who we are, and he won't try it on when I've had one word with him, unless my suspicions are unfounded, I mean. Isn't it about time to test them? My good bunny, what do you suppose I've been doing all this while? He keeps nothing in here. There isn't a lock to the Chippendale that you couldn't pick with a penknife, and not a loose board in the floor, for I was treading for one before the boy left us. Chimney's no use in a place like this where they keep them swept for you. Yes, I'm quite ready to try his bedroom. There was but a bathroom besides, no kitchen, no servant's room. Neither are necessary in King John's mansions. I thought it as well to put my head inside the bathroom while Raffles went into the bedroom, for I was tormented by the horrible idea that the man might all this time be concealed somewhere in the flat. But the bathroom blazed void in the electric light. I found Raffles hanging out of the starry square which was the bedroom window, for the room was still in darkness. I felt for the switch at the door. "'Put it out again!' said Raffles fiercely. He rose from the sill, drew blind and curtains carefully, then switched on the light himself. It fell upon a face creased more in pity than in anger, and Raffles only shook his head as I hung mine. "'It's all right, old boy,' said he. "'But corridors have windows, too, and servants have eyes. And you and I are supposed to be in the other room, not in this. But cheer up, Bunny. This is the room. Look at the extra bolt on the door.' He's had that put on. And there's an iron ladder to this window in case of fire. Way of escape ready against the hour of need. He's a better man than I thought him, Bunny, after all. But you may bet your bottom dollar that if there's any boodle in the flat, it's in this room. Yet the room was very lightly furnished, and nothing was locked. We looked everywhere, but we looked in vain. The wardrobe was filled with hanging coats and trousers in a press the drawers with the softest silk and finest linen. It was a camp bedstead that would not have unsettled an anchorite. There was no place for treasure there. I looked up the chimney, but Raffles told me not to be a fool, and asked if I ever listened to what he said. There was no question about his temper now. I never knew him in a worse. "'Then he has got it in the bank,' he growled. "'I'll swear I'm not mistaken in my man.' I had the tact not to differ with him there, but I could not help suggesting that now was our time to remedy any mistake we might have made. We were on the right side of midnight still. "'Then we stultify ourselves downstairs,' said Raffles. "'No, I'll be shot if I do. He may come in with the Kirkleatham diamonds. You do what you like, Bunny, but I don't budge.' "'I certainly shan't leave you,' I retorted to be knocked into the middle of next week by a better man than yourself. I had borrowed his own tone, and he did not like it. They never do. I thought for a moment that Raffles was going to strike me, for the first and last time in his life. He could if he liked. My blood was up. I was ready to send him to the devil, and I emphasized my offense by nodding and shrugging toward a pair of very large Indian clubs that stood in the fender on either side of the chimney up which I had presumed to glance. In an instant Raffles had seized the clubs, 
and was whirling them about his grey head in a mixture of childish pique and puerile bravado, which I should have thought him altogether above. And suddenly, as I watched him, his face changed, softened, lit up, and he swung the clubs gently down upon the bed. "'They're not heavy enough for their size,' said he rapidly, "'and I'll take my oath they're not the same weight.' He shook one club after the other with both hands close to his ear. Then he examined their butt-ends under the electric light. I saw what he suspected now, and caught the contagion of his suppressed excitement. Neither of us spoke, but Raffles had taken out the portable toolbox that he called a knife, and always carried, and as he opened the gimlet he handed me the club he held. Instinctively I tucked the small end under my arm, and presented the other to Raffles. "'Hold him tight,' he whispered, smiling. "'He's not only a better man than I thought him, Bunny, he's hit upon a better dodge than ever I did of its kind. Only I should have weighted them evenly to a hair.' He had screwed the gimlet into the circular butt, close to the edge, and now we were wrenching in opposite directions. For a moment or more nothing happened. Then all at once something gave, and Raffles swore an oath as soft as any prayer and for the minute after that his hand went round and round with the gimlet, as though he were grinding a piano-organ, while the end wormed slowly out on its delicate thread of fine hard wood. The clubs were as hollow as drinking-horns, the pair of them, for we went from one to the other without pausing to undo the padded packets that poured out upon the bed. These were deliciously heavy to the hand, yet thickly swathed in cotton wool, so that some stuck together, retaining the shape of the cavity, as though they had been run out of a mould. And when we did open them— But let Raffles speak. He had deputed me to screw in the ends of the clubs, and to replace the ladder in the fender where we had found them. When I had done, the counterpane was glittering with diamonds where it was not shimmering with pearls. "'If this isn't that tiara that Lady May was married in,' said Raffles, "'and that disappeared out of the room she changed in while it rained confetti on the steps,' I'll present it to her instead of the one she lost. It was stupid to keep these old gold spoons, valuable as they are. They made the difference in the weight. Here we have probably the Kenworthy diamonds. I don't know the history of these pearls. This looks like one family of rings, left on the basin stand, perhaps? Alas, poor lady. And that's the lot. Our eyes met across the bed. What's it all worth? I asked hoarsely. "'Impossible to say, but more than we ever took in all our lives, that I'll swear to.' "'More than all?' My tongue swelled with the thought. "'But it'll take some turning into cash, old chap.' "'And must it be a partnership?' I asked, finding a lugubrious voice at length. "'Partnership be damned!' cried Raffles heartily. "'Let's get out quicker than we came in.' We pocketed the things between us, cotton wool and all not because we wanted the latter, but to remove all immediate traces of our real meritorious deed. "'The sinner won't dare say a word when he does find out,' remarked Raffles of Lord Ernest. "'But that's no reason why he should find out before he must. Everything's straight in here, I think. No, better leave the window open as it was in the blind-up. Now, out with the light. One peep at the other room. That's all right, too.' Out with the passage light, Bunny, while I open. His words died away in a whisper, 
A key was fumbling at the lock outside. "'Out with it! Out with it!' whispered Raffles in an agony. And as I obeyed, he picked me off my feet and swung me bodily but silently into the bedroom, just as the outer door opened and a masterful step strode in. The next five were horrible minutes. We heard the apostle of rational drink unlock one of the deep drawers in his antique sideboard, and sounds followed suspiciously like the splash of spirits and the steady stream from a siphon. Never before or since did I experience such a thirst as assailed me at that moment, nor do I believe that many tropical explorers have known its equal. But I had Raffles with me, and his hand was as steady and as cool as the hand of a trained nurse. That I know because he turned up the collar of my overcoat for me, for some reason, and buttoned it at the throat. I afterwards found that he had done the same to his own, but I did not hear him doing it. The one thing I heard in the bedroom was a tiny, metallic click, muffled and deadened in his overcoat pocket, and it not only removed my last tremor, but strung me to a higher pitch of excitement than ever. Yet I had then no conception of the game that Raffles was deciding to play, and that I was to play with him in another minute. It cannot have been longer before Lord Ernest came into his bedroom. Heavens, but my heart had not forgotten how to thump. We were standing near the door, and I could swear he touched me. Then his boots creaked, there was a rattle in the fender, and Raffles switched on the light. Lord Ernest Belville crouched in its glare with one Indian club held by the end, like a footman with a stolen bottle, a good-looking, well-built, iron-gray, iron-jawed man, but a fool and a weakling at that moment, if he had never been either before. "'Lord Ernest Belville,' said Raffles, "'it's no use. This is a loaded revolver, and if you force me I shall use it on you, as I would on any other desperate criminal.' I am here to arrest you for a series of robberies at the Duke of Dorchester's, Sir John Kenworthy's, and other nobles' and gentlemen's houses during the present season. You'd better drop what you've got in your hand. It's empty. Lord Ernest lifted the club an inch or two, and with it his eyebrows, and after it his stalwart frame as the club crashed back into the fender. And as he stood at his full height, a courteous but ironic smile under the cropped moustache, he looked what he was, criminal or not. "'Scotland Yard,' said he. "'That's our affair, my lord.' "'I didn't think they'd got it in them,' said Lord Ernest. "'Now I recognize you. You're my interviewer. No, I didn't think any of you fellows had got all that in you. Come into the other room and I'll show you something else. Oh, keep me covered by all means. But look at this.' On the antique sideboard— their size doubled by reflection in the polished mahogany, lay a coruscating cluster of precious stones that fell in festoons about Lord Ernest's fingers as he handed them to Raffles with scarcely a shrug. "'The Kirkleatham diamonds,' said he. "'Better add em to the bag.' Raffles did so without a smile, with his overcoat buttoned up to the chin, his tall hat pressed down to his eyes, and between the two, his incisive features and his keen, stern glance. He looked the ideal detective of fiction and the stage. What I looked, God knows, but I did my best to glower and show my teeth at his side. I had thrown myself into the game, and it was obviously a winning one. "'Wouldn't take a share, I suppose,' Lord Ernest said casually. Raffles did not condescend to reply. 
I rolled back my lips like a bullpup. Then a drink, at least. My mouth watered, but Raffles shook his head impatiently. We must be going, my lord, and you will have to come with us. I wondered what in the world we should do with him when we had got him. Give me time to put some things together. Pair of pyjamas and toothbrush, don't you know? I cannot give you many minutes, my lord, but I don't want to cause a disturbance here, so I'll tell them to call a cab, if you like. But I shall be back here in a minute, and you must be ready in five. Here, Inspector, you'd better keep this while I am gone. And I was left alone with that dangerous criminal. Raffles nipped my arm as he handed me the revolver, but I got small comfort out of that. "'See Green incorruptible?' inquired Lord Ernest as we stood face to face. "'You don't corrupt me,' I replied through naked teeth. "'Then come into my room. I'll lead the way. Think you can hit me if I misbehave?' I put the bed between us without a second's delay. My prisoner flung a suitcase upon it, and tossed things into it with a dejected air. Suddenly, as he was fitting them in, without raising his head, which I was watching, his right hand closed over the barrel with which I covered him. "'You'd better not shoot,' he said, a knee upon his side of the bed. "'If you do, it may be as bad for you as it will be for me.' I tried to wrest the revolver from him. "'I will if you force me,' I hissed. "'You'd better not,' he repeated, smiling, and now I saw that if I did, I should only shoot into the bed or my own legs. His hand was on the top of mine, bending it down, and the revolver with it. The strength of it was as the strength of ten of mine, and now both his knees were on the bed, and suddenly I saw his other hand doubled into a fist, coming up slowly over the suitcase. "'Help!' I called feebly. "'Help, forsooth. I begin to believe you are from the yard,' he said, and his uppercut came with the yard. It caught me under the chin. It lifted me off my legs. I have a dim recollection of the crash that I made in falling. End of chapter 5, part 2